Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lost Teams podcast. I'm your co-host Anthony Ciardelli. With me as always today is my fellow co-host Andrew Lennox. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Anthony. How are you doing, man? I'm doing really well. Very excited for the episode today. We're actually going to have a, a, a two-parter that we've been setting up for a while here. Part one is going to be an interview with uh, an author who wrote the book, When It Mattered Most, The Forgotten Story of America's First Stanley Cup Champions in the War to End All Wars. So we're going to be talking about the Seattle Metropolitans today with the author of the book, Kevin Tyson. Welcome, Kevin. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on the pod. Yeah, very happy to have you. And uh, basically, you're going to be part one. Part two, we're going to discuss the uh, the future of Seattle hockey with somebody from the Seattle Kraken. So that's going to be perfect. very exciting. So uh, very excited to talk about uh, <laughs> Seattle hockey and Northwest hockey. And I've said the word excited about 4,700 times in the first minute of the podcast. So we're good to go. <laughs> so Kevin, what, what motivated you to, uh, to, to write and research this book? Uh, I was working at the Sports Commission in Seattle in, in 2017, and a guy named Paul Kim, who uh, owns the Metropolitan Trademark, came in and asked us to help promote the centennial of the Metropolitan Stanley Cup Championship, and I had no idea that it happened. You know, I was born and raised in Seattle and spent my entire adult life in the sports community and, you know, and didn't know it. I mean, I literally looked at him and, and said, like, did you just say Seattle and Stanley Cup in the same sentence? Um, and you know, I was completely hooked at that point and told them I'd help. And so we set up a, a huge memorabilia kind of tour. The Hall of Fame brought out some sweaters and a pair of skates and some other uh, Metropolitan's gear. And, and we did a, a big uh, sort of, of, you know, tour and, and people were, you know, moderately excited and came out and, and checked it out. And, you know, like everybody in Seattle at that time, I just read Boys in the Boat. And so uh, I started pitching every author I knew to write the story. And, uh, didn't get a response, you know, and, and looking back, I completely understand why. Uh, and so I spent the next probably six or eight months complaining that no one would write the story. And the truth is, I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that they won. Um, and then we got a call in late November of 2017 that the Hall of Fame could bring the Stanley Cup out. And you know, we had three weeks notice and it was December 21st was the day they could bring it out. So four days before Christmas. And I remember thinking like, this could be a disaster, right? We could bring this out and no one will care and no one will come see it. And the opposite happened. I mean, it was nuts. I, I always tell people I felt like I was he hanging out with Eddie Vedder for the day. Just <laughs> people were coming running out of buildings to see it. And, you know, we pulled into Cary Park to get pictures and you could just like see all these doors opening, like, black, 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 you know, all the way down the road and people are sprinting to us. And, um, you know, it, it was nuts. And so at that point, I started complaining again about no one writing the story. And my wife finally looked at me and just said, shut up and do it. You know, and I, uh, you know, I was a college baseball player with, you know, not a lot of writing experience. But the truth is, uh, my stepfather was a, an editor and a writer of a magazine. So I kind of joke that all my college teammates were coaches kids, and I was a writer's kid. So, um, you know, it, it actually ended up being really natural. And, um, you know, and the first day I did research within five minutes, I realized how special the story was. And then I was absolutely hooked at that point. How, how long did it take for you to uh, get the book published? Uh, not that long. And I got really lucky. So I had a, a friend, uh, a guy whose son I'd coached, uh, who's written a couple of books and, mm -hmm. and he really just pulled some strings. I mean, again, the story was so spectacular that it wasn't hard for um, you know, people to connect the dots. And then, you know, and when I started, the the team wasn't even, you know, the arena situation was a mess. 
And by the time I finished, you know, I, I finished the first draft two weeks after the Board of Governors uh, voted to, just, you know, to expand to Seattle. So the timing was just absurd. Yeah, perfect timing. Were you a big hockey fan um, before, you, uh, before you wrote the book, or did you kind of have to do both research about the book and the sport? No, I wasn't a huge hockey fan other than, um, you know, I, I like watching it during the Olympics, and uh, I'd been to one NHL game in my life probably two years before that, and it was on a work meeting. And so, um, you know, I, I, I love the sport. I did. I always have. You know, I'm a huge uh, sports person, um, but I've also – you know, spent so much of my life around sports that I've kind of lost a lot of the fanness. Um, you know, but the book's not written from a real, uh, you know, micro sort of perspective on hockey, right? It's written more from a competitive perspective and more from how teams function. And so, right. um, and I think that that helped me, you know, I kind of laughed that had I written a baseball story, I would have killed it. You know, I would have just, you know, explained like, you know, how to build counts. There'd have been like three people in the country that would have been interested in it, including me. And, you know, everyone else would have been bored with tears. And so it was an advantage, I think, just to be able to really explain the sport, um, you know, more from how the, you know, athletes were experiencing it and the coaches were experiencing it. And so, uh, you know, I, I think it helped. I didn't have to do a lot of research. People would have been super happy with the talking about two strike approaches and, yeah. and two even count approaches and stuff like that. Uh, exactly. Yeah, I got you there. But uh, as we got into the story and kind of what happened with, with the Metropolitans, uh, how, you talk about the coach, uh, Pete Muldoon, a lot and, and your kind of enjoyment of seeing how that team come, came together. But in your opinion, what made that team so special about how the coach built it? I, he, he's incredible. I mean, he really was. He, uh, I laughed with people. He, he'd be considered you know, such a new school coach you know, 104 years ago, uh, he, he understood, uh, players. He, you know, had warm relationships with them. You know, there's like the scene in the book where, uh, you know, they're not playing very well and, and he pulls Jack Walker off the ice and give him a rest and then starts screaming at, you know, the, the players not, not performing and taps Jack Walker and says, get in there for Walker. He's playing terrible. Right. And the fact that the players could sit there and, and make fun of him and, and it became a joke, you know, over, uh, you know, years. And, and I actually found that story. Uh, it, it was like an article in the late thirties in the Seattle post intelligence or where all those guys came back and they had breakfast with Royal Brome and they were telling the story. Right. And so 20 or 30 years later, you could tell how important it was. And that told me that this is a guy that they had a, uh, you know, relationship with that they trusted that they believed in, you know, and then at the same time you could look at, you know, hockey is a pretty violent sport back then, right? There's a lot of penalties and a lot of, uh, you know, minutes off the ice. And you can see him really getting frustrated with that and understanding that this team can't compete if they're not on the ice. And there's a, uh, you know, the, the first season he pulls Coley Wilson off, right, and benches him. And Coley Wilson's kind of the emotional, uh, you know, heart of this team, right? And and he doesn't start him for two games. And it was really funny that the newspaper said, you know, oh, well, Roy Rickey, this new player has been performing so well that, you know, it's pushed Coley Wilson to the bench and I'm reading it as a coach and an athlete laughing saying like, that's not what happened at all. Right. He's done. You know, you're either going to play my way or you're not going to play. And, and so you just, you had this guy that really had a concept for how he wanted to coach and how he wanted his team to perform. And then on top of that had really strong relationships with them. It was, it's, 
like I'd like to play for that guy. You know, I really would. And so uh, it was really fun for me to be able to take, you know, his quotes and his words and contemporize them a little bit and write them in, in words that we would understand today. And, um, you know, but conceptually, like how that guy knew what he knew about human beings and how to motivate them and get them to play well is beyond me. It was, you know, intuitive to him. It was awesome. It, it sounded like he was quite the athlete also. Absolutely. Um, yeah, just like, how about him going out and, and, you know, doing half or, you know, between periods and skating on stilts, right? I mean, <laughs> like, can you imagine someone doing that today? Just oh, break their neck. Yeah. yeah. Boxer, right? I mean, uh, he, and he get, played lacrosse too? Yeah. Is that, yeah. Yeah. But I, I love the fact that he got in and skated with them and, you know, and competed with them. And um, he's an amazing human being. He really is. Yeah. Sounds like a pretty special guy for sure. Yeah. I really saw a lot of parallels between him and Herb Brooks. He was kind of like the early, the pre-Herb Brooks in terms of uh, how he kind of treated his team and how he built this team and his philosophy yeah. towards coaching. Um, uh, for those who are listening who are not uh, big hockey fans, or Herb Brooks was the coach of the 1980 U.S. Olympic men's hockey team. And if you've seen Miracle uh, and you've read, uh, if you've read Kevin's book, there's a lot of uh, similarities between the two, I think. Yeah, and, and like just the roster's incredible. Right. The fact that it's the wild, wild west and there's people, you know, going from, you know, one team to the next, to the next, to the next. And, and that roster stayed stable for nine years. Right. And, and just, you know, when you're building a team out, you're, you're trying to like layer it in. Right. So that your reserves, you're not trying to get guys on the way back down from their career. Right. You're trying to get guys that are on the way up, that are young, that are really athletic. And, you know, and, and his two reserves on the 1917 team both end up being perennial all stars in the 20s. Right. And Jim Riley is the only player to ever play in the NHL and Major League Baseball. You know, I mean, like you just think about what type of athlete that is that can do that. You know, and those are the young guys that he had. Right. And then, you know, you, I always think like really great coaches can take, you know, star players and make them better or at least stay out of their way and just let them do their thing. Right. And then they can take guys that are struggling and, you know, shave off the rough edges and, and really coach them up and turn them into great players. And he did that. Right. And he had, you know, the three Hall of Famers were all stars before they got there, right? They had all uh, won the Stanley Cup in 1914 with Toronto, and, and, and they all got significantly better playing for Muldoon, right? And then, he, you know, the other five guys are all people that have been released from other teams in the PCHA, and they all were all stars at some point in their career, right? And, and just, yeah, that's what great coaches do. You mentioned um, rosters during that time. Where – on the Metropolitans and the teams they played, were there any Americans playing or was it just Canadians? Yeah. I mean, for the most part, it's just Canadians, right? There's yeah. like one or two guys that are born across the border in Michigan or Minnesota that grew up in Canada, but yeah, they're all Canadians. Okay. Uh, but, and, and kind of along similar lines, you, you're talking about the wild, wild West and the PCHA. Um, but there were a lot of, seemed like a lot of milestones accomplished by PCHA teams back then uh in terms of uh i'll, I'll let you get into it um but just yeah, absolutely i mean if you think about like how the big 10 and the pac 10 are, are portrayed in football right the, the big 10 is kind of plotting and and methodical and big and physical and the pac 10 was you know at least 10 years ago 15 years ago innovative and explosive and and the pcha versus the nha are the same thing right so the nha is is the nhl right so they, they basically changed one letter in the, the league and made it the NHL in, in the fall of 1917. But it's big, physical, and slow, and, and really an individual 
uh, game and the PCHA was, you know, extremely fast, extremely athletic, you know, and it's a team game, right? So like the offsides rules are different in the PCHA than they are in the NHA. And, and you know, the hockey that you see today is the PCHA's brand of hockey, not the NHA's brand of hockey. And, and so. Um, Interesting. You know, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and I mean, think about it. So you talk about the miracle team, right? So Craig right. Patrick is the assistant coach, right? His grandfather mm -hmm. is Lester Patrick, right? Mm -hmm. Who's right. Victoria. So it's, it's Frank and Lester Patrick that, that designed all this. There's still something like 30 rules in the NHL that, that Frank Patrick created, right? Amazing. Like the playoff system, wearing numbers, you know, like all of the way, the style that they played, right? Like goalies weren't allowed to go down on their feet to, to block a, a puck back then. And he changed that and said, <laughs> hey, however you need to do it, you can do it. Um, you know, and so his style is, is what really made the, the NHL function, you know, and all of those guys, right, they're all their buddies, you know, and so even the, the NHA stars by 1970 and 18 had all come over and played in the PCHA for a year or two. And then they obviously go back and Lester Patrick becomes the, the Rangers head coach for a long time and Frank becomes the managing director of the NHL, you know, and so uh, there's a, a huge imprint, right? And then when they came, they brought two of the teams. So Victoria goes to Detroit becomes the Red Wings and Portland goes to um, Portland Chicago. goes to Chicago and becomes the Blackhawks. Yeah. And, and that whole thing with Portland and Vic and the millionaires uh, Vancouver, I think it was that Vancouver was the first team to win a Stanley cup for the West coast basically. Right. And yeah. then Portland was the first American team to compete for the Stanley cup. I had no idea <laughs> that that was the case that blew me away. So it, it really was kind of an, an innovative yeah. league. Um, yeah. Yeah, could you talk a little bit more about like the rivalry between Portland and Seattle during that time? Yeah, I mean it's pretty nasty, right? Yeah, uh, it, it wasn't a, a friendly rivalry at all. Um, you know, and it's interesting that Muldoon had gone to Portland first and then come to Seattle, and he mm -hmm. he had spent a lot of time in his younger years in Seattle, and so it was kind of a, a homecoming for him. Uh, but the you know the the new coach for Portland was not the kind of in that same mold as Muldoon and the Patricks. And so, right. um, you know, he really wanted to play physical and he wanted to get teams out of their comfort zone. And, you know, it was a nasty place to play. And, and so it wasn't a positive rivalry. And then the rivalry with Vancouver was incredibly positive, right? And, and the millionaires are absurdly talented. So seven, all seven starters from the 1917 millionaires team are in the hall of fame. Right. Oh, and, and that's amazing. Um, you know, they have the best player in, in Cyclone Taylor. And I mean, he's so much better than any other person on the ice. Uh, you know, and then the, like, I, I love the fact that the, the Metropolitan's been winning the Stanley Cup in 1917, right? They knock off the 1915 champion uh, millionaires to win the PCHA. And then they knock off the 1916 Stanley Cup champions to, to win the cup itself. And so, um, you know, it, it was the most difficult possible route that they could have taken. And, uh, and they did it. You know, and that's like why I love the story so much, right? There's 20 times during that season where they could have just said, like, it's too tough, right? It's like these teams have been there before. They know what they're doing. They're more talented than we are, right? Mm -hmm. Like it would have been so easy to just like pull back just that little teeny bit and let Vancouver pass them. And they just they, they never did. It didn't matter what happened to them. They just kept competing. You mentioned uh, Cyclone Taylor. I think – I could be wrong on this, but I think there used to be some hockey stores in Canada called Cyclone Taylors. They're still there. Yeah, they're, they're still there? there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and he's we, Wayne Gretzky. The only yeah. other, you know, person in hockey that uh, is, is on Wayne Gretzky's level is Cyclone Taylor. 
the sure. exact same guy. Just he was doing things that no one else could even come close to doing. And hmm. and that kind of that we have a little bit of overlap in terms of names that we're hearing and that you read about with the Seattle Metropolitans uh, and an earlier episode we did about the Toronto Blue Shirts. And it kind of struck me uh, in a couple ways that a lot of people these days complain about like team, players not being loyal to teams and free agency and your favorite guy who's been drafted moves to somewhere else. And uh, it was kind of cool to see that that happened back then, but maybe for different reasons. It wasn't exactly that it was the money, but it was more that leagues and teams stopped existing. Um, and then, and the other part of it is that once they got to Seattle, like you mentioned, they stuck around. Yeah, it was money. I mean, you know, they're, uh, when the PCHA started, the first thing they did was go after the best players in the NHA, right? And, and there was uh, basically the NHA owners instituted a, a form of a salary cap, right? Not knowing that the PCHA was starting and they were tired of paying players and, and all of that. And so they institute this salary cap. And then within a month or two, the you know PCHA comes together and the Patricks go and they just get everybody, right? And they yeah. pull all of them back to the West. And then they fight for two or three years. There's a massive player war that goes on where they're just poaching players off of each other's rosters. And then it comes to an agreement uh, in, I think, about 1914. It's either 1913 or 1914. And it's basically, you know, we'll split the country in half. You get everybody on the East, we get everybody on the West, and we'll play for the Stanley Cup, which is what the Patricks wanted, right? They were more savvy business people than anyone else. And so um, you know, they wanted the best players, no doubt, but they also knew that they could create leverage if they did that and that they wanted recognition for the coast and they wanted to be able to play for the Stanley cup. And so that's kind of what finally settled the whole thing down. I'm curious to know how, so in the, the season before they won their, their first season was 1916, correct? Or 1915, correct. 1916. Yeah. So, and they seemed like they had a pretty rousing, rousing welcome in Seattle right off the bat. How, could you figure out, were you able to figure out the factors for that or how that happened yeah i mean so seattle's huge right now and, and exploding in pre-pandemic right just like got all this business going on and all the, the sports teams are winning championships and uh you know it, it's it's been a fun past decade in seattle and it's the third time that we've had this little you know population boom and that was the first right and so you have Nordstrom and UPS and, and Boeing and all these companies are really starting to take root. And, you know, you have this town that uh, at the turn of the century is, is still pretty much a small little, you know, outpost. And by 1910, it's a, a major city that's just hosted a world's fair and like really, really, really wants to be considered a major U.S. city, right? There's a series of articles that run in January of 1916. It's like the business leaders imploring the community to come together and and make Seattle the great West Coast city, right? And San Francisco is the most populous town at that point. And it's like, you know, here's how we're going to overtake San Francisco and keep Los Angeles out. And, and you kind of <laughs> laugh, you look back on it, it's not even close, right? It wasn't close within a year of that. Los Angeles, was, you know, just exploded in population. But you have this city that wants to be great, that really wants to be taken seriously. You know, and then the University of Washington football team hadn't lost in like, eight years right and they never get a national championship they're always like third or fourth in the polls and it's because nobody thinks west coast sports are already good right and so when when the metropolitans come you finally have major league sports in seattle right and then for them to be as successful as they were it was really you know the, the first time that seattle got to put itself out on a national stage where it actually got to compete for something rather than just you know like playing for a mythical national championship and so the fact that they they did it 
you know, that people got so uh, enraptured by that team and then that they won it, it was, it was magic. And uh, I think, Andrew, you mentioned a question you wanted to ask about the ceremonial puck drop that I, that I kind of noticed. It made me laugh. Well, yeah, so there was a puck drop. Um, that the Yeah, the first game, it was the mayor of Seattle, correct? Yeah, yeah. So why did he have to scramble <laughs> off the ice? Because it was a real puck drop. It wasn't the ceremonial one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he did the actual. Yeah, That's hilarious. So yeah. I'm assuming he didn't have skates on? I don't – if he did, he didn't know how to use them. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, there was like two or three really, you know, great kind of sentences about the his fall in, in two of the three newspapers. So it was great. That's- that's funny. Do, were you able to tell if that was like a thing back then? If the, if the, the like mayors dropped the puck or if that was just like happened once in Seattle? Oh, you know, I mean, I didn't actually check to see if other people had done it, but the way that it, it read in the Seattle newspapers made it look like it was a pretty normal thing. Oh man. That's amazing. Just imagine the mayors just being like, all right, yeah. I dropped the puck today and not get killed. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's the first game, right? I don't think that anybody knew what was actually going to happen. I don't think they yeah. realized how fast they were. Uh, so I think it was probably one of those things where it was really fun until all of a sudden people, you know, took off and then you realize the power. So, right. Another thing I'm, I, I don't, I hope I'm not misremembering this. It, it's, it's comical now. It probably wasn't funny back then. Uh, Andrew and I have joked about it a couple of times for different teams and, and travel back in this era but there was a, a player for another team that had passed away, like traveling or something like that. Um, I forgot. Yeah, exactly. So in 1916, um, it's um, Portland. So Portland goes back to Montreal to play for uh, the Stanley Cup. And uh, Dick Irvin dies of uh, pneumonia on the way back. Um, you know, and Famous brother, hockey family. <laughs> yeah. I mean, his brother goes, his brother's in the Hall of Fame. Right. Um, and his brother comes and plays for Portland in 1917. Uh, but yeah, he died on the way back. And then obviously in 1919, you know, one of the Canadians players, uh, there was an outbreak in the Stanley Cup final. Uh, you know, the day of the deciding game of the Spanish flu was in the middle of that pandemic and Joe Hall dies. And yeah. really like that's, you know, what they think that Muldoon, you know, had a heart attack, you know, at 41 is he got really, really sick uh, at that time too and was in the hospital for a while. And I think he lost something like 20 pounds so it's interesting just i mean how history repeats itself like it feels yeah. like it's a kind of a deja vu with seattle coming back in into into the nhl with the a tail end hopefully of a pandemic um yeah. so yeah a, a really interesting um kind of part of history that we're in right now and that's repeating itself the uh the refing controversy with portland was another thing that i uh, i kind of enjoyed it seems I mean, it seems kind of familiar to things we've experienced today, but at no point has there ever been a, a, a ref that hasn't been allowed to ref against the team. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, my interpretation of that was they were just being petty, you know, that they were sort of sore losers. And, um, you know, and Mickey Ion lived in Seattle, right? He's Canadian. And uh, again, he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame too. But the fact that he lived in Seattle and the Metropolitans beat them, you know, they, they spun it back that he was um, – helping or aiding them or things, you know, and you could really sense the frustration of everybody, uh, you know, even of the Vancouver folks, just like, you know, really, this is really how this thing's going to go down, you know, and, and just, uh, you know, Mickey Ion had this reputation for just being, you know, a stickler for the rules, no matter who you were. 
Um, so for them to question his integrity like that was was pretty petty. And he was the PCHA's rep. Basically, he was like the Ed Hockley of, of the PCHA, yeah. we'll call it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good comparison. And then he goes, like, he goes to the NHL and becomes the, the referee, in, you know, in chief for the NHL for a long time, too. So. Hmm. Yeah, that's that was a frustrating part. I felt like I was kind of like a fan or, or in the media with the Seattle team as I was going through your book. And uh, another thing you mentioned, kind of their path to the championship. So they, they beat their the rival, their, the Portland Rosebuds, who had competed in the first Stanley Cup for an American team. They beat the former uh, they beat the former um, Canadians and or the the millionaires during the season. They have very kind of a back and forth rivalry with them. But then the millionaires challenged them to an exhibition series before the Stanley Cup. That blew me away. That was so yeah, interesting. That's just weird. <laughs> so that was normal. Though they oh. everybody did that back then. Okay. Uh, and it's just like you because it, it was like the World Series in baseball, right? Where you have the two different leagues have different rules, and so it allowed the the teams to play both styles of rules and sort of work their way through it. Um, the fact that Vancouver created such a hubbub about it in 1917 was interesting to me, you know, as I was, you know, researching it. And I mean, like really, you know, the first, uh, you know, day that I'm doing research, I went down to the, the downtown Seattle library and put the old microfilms in because the, at that point, the post intelligence or wasn't, um, you know, it, it wasn't digitized yet. So I'm scrolling through and I can tell that, uh, you know, the U.S. is not yet in World War One, and that it's imminent, right? And I'm getting through it and getting closer to the date that I know that the first day of the Stanley Cup final game won, and I get to two days before, and the headline's like this big, and it says Czar abdicates, you know, and I just like, I sent my wife a text, like, you're never going to believe what, you know, happens two days before, right? And then I go and I read the first game, and I'm like, that's not at all what I expected to happen, right? I mean, I was shocked, right? And then you go and you read the second game, and you're like, wow third game wow fourth game holy cow right and then at that point you can tell that it's imminent that the, the u.s is entering the war and so i googled it and it's six days later right i'm like wow holy smokes like this is crazy and then i started going backward through the first season you know and literally like you guys have read the book right every mm -hmm. stone i turned over there was a massive diamond underneath it right it's like you couldn't have scripted the story better you know you're just like looking at like i didn't have to make you know, like dramatize any of it. It was just, it was incredible, right? Just yeah. the fact that it went down to the wire, right? It's the closest, you know, uh, pennant race in the history of the league, right? And, and the, the uh, it's the two best teams, right? I mean, like Vancouver and Seattle have the two best records in the history of the PCHA and Seattle edges them by like, you know, 0 0.001 percentage points, you know, in winning mm -hmm. percentage, right? And it's just like, it was absurd, right? And then you go back to the first, the start of the season, too and it's like that's not what I expected to happen at all right I mean you just like you can completely it was really easy for me to sit there and read this thing and feel like I, it was 1917 and I'm reading the stories you know it was like binge watching a show on Netflix where you can just like <laughs> see it all it's incredible yeah, that's right? really it was, cool it, it was really fun for me to kind of go back and breathe life back into it and it felt co contemporarily in a lot of ways too where like it, as a sports fan you're looking up either like a, a major league baseball pennant race or an nhl playoff race you're looking like how many games ahead like how many games in hand how how is yeah. this gonna look and it, you're and you're like starting to feel like oh boy it's it's not looking good for them even though they're in first place you, you kind of get yeah. that that ball you in your stomach you yeah. relived a season yeah you know and like i laughed too right so right before i walked to the library to do it i fired off an email to phil pritchard at the hall of fame 
you mm-hmm. know, and, and I'd gotten to know him pretty well from when he was the one that brought the, uh, the memorabilia out and just yeah. said, like, do you know anything about these guys? Right. Like, for all I knew, they just came for a year, won the thing and went back. Right. And then it was like, did anyone care about the Stanley Cup in 1917? Right. Like, wouldn't it be funny if we're all celebrating this thing that no one cared about when it happened? And then 20 years later, it became the most famous trophy in North America. Right. And we're like, yeah, all right. We won this <laughs> thing. But no one really cared then. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, what, what did sports look like in 1917? Right. It's just like in my mind, it's this completely different enterprise. Right. It has nothing to do with the sports that we see today. You know, and so I'm thinking all these things and then you go and you start doing research and the Stanley Cup is like the biggest deal in the world, 1917, right? Nothing's changed. It was crazy, you know, and then you look and you like look through the roster for the Metropolitans, like all those guys stayed for nine years and like, holy cow, three of them are in the Hall of Fame, right? And then you start really getting into the sports and it's funny, like when it mattered most wasn't the first title of the book, which is normal, right? Everybody has working titles. Um, but it was in the last paragraph, right? And I was advocating for uh, immortality is like one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs. And so that was the original, that was the working title. And I was- Great, great song, that. by the way. Oh yeah, <laughs> no doubt, right? I'm advocating for that. And I sent it back to the publisher and I was just like, look, it's the last word. And he's like, yeah, that's not it. But look, three sentences before that, you know, it says when it mattered most, he's like, that's it. You know, and immediately I'm like, oh, wow, that's perfect, right? And then the editor, comes in and goes, well, I don't know, like, I think it matters more today than it did then, right? And my response is like, not to the players, mm-hmm. right? Like, to the guys that were on the ice, there's no difference competing in 1917 as there is competing in 2017. Now, equipment's better, TV, you know, all those things, but those guys were really famous within their, with like, really within the country, right? And, and once they're on the ice, there's no difference between what was being played then and being played now. I mean, it was like, you could feel that tension of, of, like knowing that you had to play well, right? And knowing you had to win this game, but knowing you couldn't focus on those things and you just had to go out and compete. And, uh, and that was my favorite part, right? It was like, okay, how do I get that to come back through, you know, the characters and the story? And how do I, I get these guys that, you know, we've only seen in black and white pictures, you know? And even I went into it thinking like, this is going to be this slow, easy, methodical thing. And then you're like, no, not at all, right? And it was, you know, my whole objective was, when you got done reading it, I wanted you to understand who those people were as human beings and how they competed and, you know, how they experienced the sport. The, uh, you mentioned the similarities. There was one difference that you touched on briefly and that we've talked about in, in previous episodes, that the two different leagues in the Stanley Cup, uh, the Canadians and, and the Metropolitans, played in leagues that had different rules. So the Metropolitans, I believe, they were playing seven-man hockey and the Canadians six, correct. or was it the other way around? No, oh, that's correct. That must have been such a weird, I mean, Andrew and I both grew up playing and uh, I can't imagine the space on the ice decreases so much with one more oh, or yeah. one less player that I, it must've been interesting hearing how they tried to deal with that. Yeah. And what were the positions? So were everything they... was the same, but the seventh was a Rover. So the Rover, <laughs> the Rover do. could do anything. You go, <laughs> you know, anywhere on the ice they wanted to. So you put the Rover was basically, I mean, for the Metropolitan he's there arguably their best player. So Jack Walker and Frank Boyson are the two best players. Uh, Bernie Morris is the best scorer, right? And, uh, you know, Hap Holmes is one of the best goalies in, in the era. But, you know, Jack Walker is like, he's like a lockdown corner, right? He's Deion Sanders. Like he could they'd put him on whoever the best player was on the other team and he'd shut him down, right? And then on top of that, he was also one of the best scorers. 
right? So on the Metropolitan's team, he's like the third or the fourth scoring option, but that's more by choice than, you know, anything else. He just was a completely unselfish player. Um, but, you know, that was one reason that they were so good too, is he could just shut it down. And Cyclone Taylor played the same position for a little while, and then they flipped it and had another guy play it. But um, what, what were the scores back then? Were they like high scoring, low scoring? Could you talk a little bit more about that? Over the map. Like yeah. seven five wasn't abnormal. One nothing wasn't abnormal. Mm. You know, it just. Um, I mean, they could. It depended on what they were trying to do, or it depended if they had a lot of games, right? So you had seven uh, players on the ice, and you had nine on your roster. So everybody mm -hmm. was out there the entire time, and if they had you know, two or three games in a week, they might get into a more of a defensive posture and, and just sag and, and not let anyone score. And so you'd see lower scores in those games. And, um, you know, was there fights? Oh yeah. Nonstop. I mean, nonstop <laughs> and violent, like yeah. guys hitting each other with sticks and, um, it was bad, you know, and the Metropolitans didn't do that. And the millionaires didn't do that, but, you know, you looked at both their, the, those two teams and almost all of their penalty minutes were when they were playing Portland. Right. It just Portland would provoke fights and they'd go nuts and, and, you know, they'd get in the middle of it. So I basically it would be considered assault today. Some of the stuff that was going uh, on. I mean, it was then too, though. Yeah. I mean, there were times when they'd have police officers going into the uh, oh, wow. locker rooms and telling them to knock it off and calm mm -hmm. down. And, um, wow. you know, it was scary though. Right. You had like Coley Wilson gets kicked out of the league because he, he breaks Mickey McKay's jaw, you know, oh. and just, and they become best friends later in life, which to me told you all you need to know about Coley Wilson. And he's the yeah. guy that you hated being the opponent, but he was your best friend if he was your teammate. Um, but that's just like, it's how it was back then. It blows me away. Uh, I mean, that was something you, I'm glad you mentioned it, that, uh, that there were, there were most of the players, a good majority of them played the entire game like that, <laughs> that yeah. men's league, I'll show up to a men's league game and we'll have six players, seven skaters in the locker room. And I'll be like, Oh no, this is going to be awful. But they yeah. did it at the professional level back then without blinking an eye. And they probably smoked cigarettes too. <laughs> I don't think the Metropolitans did. So the, the temperance <laughs> movement is really starting to kick in back then, right? Uh -huh. And so, you, you know, like uh, the prohibition is, is started in uh -huh. Washington. And so there's not a lot of drinking and there's not a lot of smoking. Uh, mm. And, and you, you get the sense of them talking about that a lot. Like, you know, he's a master of clean living and he was focused on clean health. And so uh, I, I tend to think that you know, a good 10 years later that every one of those guys had a heater going the entire, you know, game on, on the bench. But uh, at that point, I, I think that it was, you know, they were pretty, pretty healthy. Okay. Uh, and getting into this a little more into the Stanley Cup final, another thing that seemed really familiar today was, and I'm sorry, Montreal, any Montreal listeners we have, but the pompousness, the pompous attitude that Montreal had towards this kind of fledgling league and this team that was, that they didn't view as equals and the, the, the coach talking about how they anticipated just sweeping them. And I was like, huh, see, we're kind of familiar, but that was, that was one of my favorite parts of that, of your coverage of the finals. Yeah. I mean, it, nothing's changed, right? <laughs> I mean, I think we still, maybe we're the guilty of a little inferiority complex on the West, but I still, you know, think that there's a huge East coast bias and um, yeah, I mean, they were absolutely arrogant about it and uh, you know, and like, Great teams typically are, right? I mean, great teams have an edge and, and think that, that they're invincible and, and all that. But, you know, you also think that there's a little bit of humility and, and um, respect for your opponent. There was absolutely none uh, with that team. You know, it was funny to me just how, 
they really flipped the series after that first game and just blitzed the Canadians. They didn't want to hit them. Um, I loved that part of it. I mean, I truly did. It just, can you imagine, like, can you imagine playing game one, the, the one game that everybody thinks that you might win and you get blitzed, just smoked, right? And then you have to come back and reset and, and turn this thing and, and get it going the other direction. Like, you know, you know how hard that is, right? Think about like in a high school season, how hard that is. You're doing oh, a yeah. Stanley Cup, right? I mean, like it was a huge deal. They were running like wires back to the East Coast so that people could get score updates in real time. Like this was a huge deal, right? At the highest level of sport. And they had to, to you know, flush a really bad game and come back against somebody that had already won. Right. So it's not like the Canadians are like lose the first one. They're like, oh, we might lose this one. It's like, whatever, you know, like you're not going to beat us. And you know how that is. Right. You just have that mentality and that edge having done it once before. It's, yeah. it's incredible to think the fortitude that the Metropolitan showed there and just cutting every distraction out and just you know, getting it done. Definitely yeah. a tough task. Having having uh, having grown up in New England, a, a Bruins fan, even though I'm in the media now, uh, and I tried. I tried to be more uh, unbiased or anything. Uh, that that disdain for the Montreal Canadiens still lingers. So I was reading those series, those uh, the recaps of the games, and I was like, "Yeah, yes." Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was it was pretty satisfying. You mentioned before the war, uh, how you intertwined the events that were going on, and really how you were engrossed in in it when you were doing the research. Um, <clears throat> but you what were some of the bigger impacts that the war had in the league i know one of the teams was uh had to move because their arena was taken over and uh, i think we mentioned in a previous episode there was an entire team from the military that ended up having to got shipped out or something like that yeah so the victoria gets their arena taken from them to use as a weapons depot and so that's why they're playing in spokane in 1917 and they didn't play in 1918 so then the 1918 season is a disaster right i mean they Lester Patrick's coaching Seattle. Muldoon's got to go to Portland, and everybody's rosters are are completely screwed up. Um, you know, there's a lot of players that that go and and uh, and fight in the war. So Jim Riley misses a season fighting in the war, and um, you know, there's probably uh, two to three on on each rosters. Uh, in 1917, Frank Boyson thinks that he's getting shipped off, so he doesn't think he's going to be there for the season uh, in September of, of 1916, right? So. Uh, that's the same with voice. And so in September of 16, there's articles running in the, in the Seattle newspapers that Jack Walker is already shipped out and he's at the front in Europe. And so he's not going to play the season, you know, and so they didn't know that their roster was going to be set until, you know, days before they started training camp. Uh, so, and then, sorry. Yeah. So what did they do? Did they have like replacement players that to fill in or did they have tryouts? What, what was the steps yeah, I and mean, getting new players? players so they yeah. contracted teams. So uh -huh. there was there was more players that were out there, right? And then the they basically booed the Toronto franchise, you know, in the NHA, and they're all frustrated with with the owner. And they create the team that's it's a military battalion, and it's because you know most of the players are Canadian, and so they get sent back to uh, back for basic training, and they can field the team there. And so that's you know part of the the uh, NHA in 1917, right? And then the team disbands because guys start, you know, getting actually shipped over and then they're not playing well. They don't really, it's hard for them to focus on both, you know, hockey and the military. And so uh, the team doesn't end up playing the full season, but, and, you know, can you imagine that at a professional level, all of a sudden one of the teams disbanding in the middle of the year, 
just the havoc that it wreaked on their schedules and, and on all of it. Um, and you mentioned uh, the final kind of um, lasting impact on the Metropolitans from the war, one of their best players. I believe it was, was it Bernie Morris who ended up uh, spending time in prison because of it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that poor guy, right? I mean, you know, there's a lot of places that like that I've read where he's considered the greatest player, not in the hall of fame. Right. And, you know, to find out he'd been suspended in the 1914 season, just as part of the player wars, he's the only player that's ever suspended. Uh, and it's just, he's a nobody because he's collateral damage and it's easy to, you know, slit his throat and, and not worry about it. And then, you know, in 1919, the day that the playoffs started, he doesn't show up for the game, right? And, and they'd kind of known that this was potentially coming and they were hoping that, that they were going to have to deal with it until after the, the, the final was over. But uh, he gets divorced. Well, basically he gets conscripted, right? And so there's an agreement between Canada and America that if you live in, you know, if you're a citizen of one country and live in the other, you're subject to both drafts, right? Oh, wow. And so all the mm -hmm. Metropolitan's players, even though they're Canadian, are subject to the uh, American draft and, and Bernie Morris gets drafted, right? Well, he's up in Canada during the off season. He's in Vancouver and he doesn't get the draft summons, you know, and, and, or, you know, who knows, right? He's not a very sophisticated guy, right? Orphaned at nine years old, like eighth grade education, not a super sophisticated guy. So if he did know, he didn't take care of the details the way he should have, right? But all he basically had to prove was that he wasn't there and he doesn't show up for, uh, you know, his, his physical, and so they immediately send him to, you know, what should have been boot camp, right? Well, it's all like three or four days after the armistice is signed. So the war's over at this point, right? And then uh, he goes in, he explains the whole thing. So as he wasn't there, they say, okay, they don't worry about it. And then he gets divorced in February of 1919. And he tells the judge that he lives full time in Seattle and his wife won't come out. And so the judge grants him the divorce. Well, the military people are sitting in the courtroom there. They hear him say that. They know he's told them that he was in Vancouver for the offseason. And so then they charge him with uh, draft evasion, right? And realistically, he's a famous person, and they're trying to, you know, send a message. put fear into everybody, make an example of him, right? And so he gets arrested the day that the playoffs start in 1919 and, uh, you know, sits in jail, right? And luckily, Frank Boyston is uh, – a star, you know, I always think he's Joe Montana. He's the guy that made everything work, right? So Morris can't play. So Foyston comes out and scores three goals in the first period of the, the playoff game and effectively ends the series right then and, and sends the Mets to the, the final again. But Morris's, you know, trial drags out. And at first they think that everything's going to get taken care of. He's going to be able to come back and play. And, you know, a week goes past the, the, the series ending and he gets convicted of draft evasion. And sentenced to two years hard labor at Alcatraz, right? Oh, so he gets shipped off to Alcatraz, misses the entire 1920 season. And then at some point in the fall, uh, you know, Frank Patrick says he's going to take the, the case all the way to Woodrow Wilson and get it overturned. Everybody knows it's ridiculous. There's, you know, quotes throughout the spring and the summer from people that were on the draft board saying this is the most egregious, you know, sentence we've ever seen. This is horrible. We can't do this to a person. So at some point he gets transferred uh, to a regiment in Northern California. We think that he stayed in Alcatraz, right? And then he's released on the one year anniversary and he's given his basically uh, military service time. So when he dies, he dies a US Army vet and he's on the, you know, such and such brigade, 
you know, of the U.S. military, you know, in the Alcatraz division, right? And so he gets a, a military burial and he goes through a military hospital and all that stuff when he dies. And they basically get him to Seattle the day before the Metropolitans leave for Ottawa for the 1920 Stanley Cup final. And, and he plays completely wow. out of shape, but he plays in the series. You know, and realistically, that probably cost him the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Right? I mean, his his per game numbers are it's you know he and Cyclone Taylor are head and shoulders above everybody else uh, in the league and and um, and it's his career numbers that are just a little bit short right and he missed two seasons you know and then the not funny thing but other thing is he accidentally poisoned himself two years later and missed like four or five games in a season um, yeah tragic tragic guy how where did they how did they disappear what was their kind of their downfall. So again, the most Seattle story possible, right? So the University of Washington owns the land where uh, the arena was, and they still do today. It's you know a big part of the endowment for the university. Um, but the Fairmont Hotel, the Olympic Hotel, was built across the street. It's still to this day the most prestigious, oldest, nicest hotel in the city, and they wanted a parking garage. And so they went to the university and said, "Hey." you need to kick these guys out of this arena. We want to turn this into a parking garage. And, and the university went back to the Metropolitan and said, hey, you're out, right? And so they had originally had a 10-year lease and they went to the Patricks and said, here's, you know, here's your year back and here's a lot more on top of it just to leave. And so the Patricks took the money and the league was kind of starting to, to fall apart at that point. And it was getting obvious that they're going to have to move you know, uh, franchises back East and things like that. And so they took the money when they could. And uh, it just it happened so late that there was no opportunity to get another arena built in time to, uh, to play the season. And so that was it. And, you know, most of the Metropolitan's players went to Victoria and played the last two years there and they win the Stanley cup. So Victoria is the last non NHL team to win the Stanley cup. And they have like four or five of those Metropolitan's players. And then all those guys go over and, um, and play in Detroit for the first year. And the rest of the guys, Muldoon goes down to Portland and coaches the uh, Rosebuds, and he goes to Chicago, and he becomes the Blackhawks' first head coach, and he pulls the rest of the Metropolitan's players with him to um, Chicago, including Coley Wilson, who'd been banned from the league, right? And again, that told me what those guys thought about Coley. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's frustrating to hear, but also it's just how that sprung so many different talented teams in, in, yeah. in the NHL at – it's fascinating. I mean, but it's coming, the Sonic story. I mean, it's yeah. the exact same thing that happened with the Sonics. It's true. I just had a quick question, you know, in regards to um, just with the popularity of the Metropolitans and, you know, the success on the ice. And then also, you know, major junior hockey being done doing did really well and does really well in, in Washington. Um, is there any idea why it took, Seattle so long to get an NHL team back. Do you yeah, have any so this idea? Is the the third time that it got to the point where it was. I mean, we were ex uh, awarded an expansion franchise in the seventies, you know, and then uh, I think there was a lockdown that happened or some sort of labor stoppage, and that stopped it. And then it got all the way up to again the point in the late eighties, or excuse me, yeah, late eighties, where uh, they were going to award an expansion franchise to Seattle and the Sonics owners when they redid the arena intentionally made it too small for the nhl they didn't want to share it oh, and so that oh. shut that down right so it's just been fits and starts um you know but it's, it's interesting right like um you know my, my grandparents generation everyone in the metropolitans 
right? And then my generation, it had just been forgotten. So Royal Brome was the official score for the Metropolitans, if you read that in the book. And if you're from Seattle, he's he's one of the most famous, he is the most famous person. He's the patriarch of the sports community, right? And, you know, his, you know, he's the street now between the Mariners Stadium and the Seahawks Stadium. It's Royal Brome Way, right? And, and, uh, and, and so, you know, Royal talked about the Metropolitans a lot, and, and he ends up dying. Uh, he has a heart attack in the kingdom watching the Seahawks when he's in his mid-80s, right? And when he dies, it, a lot of it dies with him, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so he, he wrote stories about the Metropolitans every couple of years all the way up until he died in the 70s. And we all think it's pretty fascinating, right? I mean, he covered the Metropolitans, the Sonics, the Seahawks, and the Mariners, right? It just, it's incredible to think about that. Um, you know, and now, right, like five years ago, nobody knew who the Metropolitans were. Four years ago, everybody knew they won the Stanley Cup in 1917, you know, and now, you know, everybody loves the, the team, the franchise, and the history, and, uh, you know, it's been really neat to, to see that, you know, and it's just, it's mostly, it's because of the way they played, right, because people have gotten in, and they've, they've kind of started to understand that this wasn't just a team that was there 100 years ago, this is a special team that, you know, you wanted to be part of it, and so um, they've quickly become, you know, every bit as, in, you know, ingrained in the, in, in, Seattle is the Sonics, the Mariners, Seahawks, anybody. How excited are you now to see the Kraken come back? I mean, as someone who who grew up on the East Coast is now a West Coast transplant and uh, loves hockey, I I could not be more excited for a, a Seattle to have a team just to see how how that's going already. Yeah, I mean, you walk around Seattle today, you think the Kraken have been around for forty years. Um, you see more memorabilia or more gear, Kraken gear than anybody else you know two years ago it was Seahawks two to one now it's cracking two to one um, <laughs> I mean people are so beyond geeked up and excited and uh, yeah I, I can't wait you know and I went to a, a Canucks game the Friday before the pandemic struck last year right and so it was really the, the first time that I went as a fan I went with a, a friend in the baseball community in Vancouver and I, it's incredible to watch live. I mean, it really, truly is this, the athleticism. I was laughing with everybody. There's a, a point where there's a guy out on the wing and he kind of like curls and then cuts back and someone had the ice, you know, probably, or the puck, excuse me, you know, 10 to 15 feet in front of the, the goal and shot it at about 95 miles an hour up the ice. And the guy comes on a curl, stops the puck right on his stick and then just blasted it. You know, and I'm thinking like, you could give me a hundred shots of that, right? Like the first pass hits my stick, it's ricocheting off faster than it came in. You know, I mean, just the athleticism and the size and the skill level, like it's going to be incredible. I think I'm picturing that play. Uh, that was Besser, I think Pedersen or Pedersen to Besser. That they did that a couple times. That was yeah. an unbelievable uh, out yeah. the end board thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's such I mean, a better sport live too than it is on TV. I mean, it's great on TV, but agreed. I mean, yeah. it really, truly is, uh, yeah, it's going to be a huge thing in Seattle. You know, and I think the the sentiment now is that it's not, you know, if the Sonics come back, it's when, you know, and, and I think we all think it's probably going to be pretty quickly, right? right? And I promise you that the Sonics coming back is not going to detract one ounce from what the Kraken are doing. I mean, it's, people are so on board with, you know, everything that they've done and, and uh it's like hockey is going to be a huge hit here. I mean, it, it is right. It's, it is like 
just going all the way back to Metropolitan, like it, it, it's like the root of our sports community, you know, and it never really went away, right? I mean, we, we, we might have lost sight of, of the why, but it was still was, you know, was woven into everything about the city. And so it's going to be huge. Do you think the Seattle Thunderbirds will survive with the Kraken in town? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I do. Like, you know, the the Aqua Sox and the Rainiers, the Mariners minor league teams thrive here, you know, mm -hmm. and people like the Thunderbirds a lot. You know, the games are fun and Silvertips and Everett, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, there's there's a really healthy rivalry there. Um, you know, both those communities are uh, have had successful minor league baseball teams. And so I would bet that it, it sticks around, maybe even grows, right? I, I tend to think you're going to get a huge influx of kids playing hockey in Seattle. So. Absolutely. I think, I mean, that's going to do it for my questions. Is, was there anything you wanted to add, Kevin, just to wrap things up or you, that was a pretty, a pretty awesome interview. Yeah. I just, I'm, I love talking about the Metropolitan. So, you know, awesome. it really, uh, I, th I think history should remember those that are worthy, right. And they're absolutely worthy. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And just like Great we story. said, Kevin's book is titled when it mattered most, the forgotten story of America's first Stanley cup champions in the war to end all wars. And, like I mentioned a bunch of times, I really enjoyed it. It was amazing. So thank Excellent you. Excellent book. Yeah. So thank you, Kevin, so much for coming on. Is there anything else you want to promote or anywhere anyone can find you on social media or anything like that? No, I, I just appreciate people listening to the, the Metropolitan story. So. Got it. Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Delhi Tweets. That's D-E-L-L-I-T-W-E-E-T-S. Andrew, where can they find you? You can find me at A-W-L-E-N. That's A-W-L-E-N-N. -N. And as always, feel free to give us feedback about teams you want us to cover, uh, critiques. We're always happy to hear how we can make the show better for you. Any suggestions? But uh, I think that'll do it. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Thanks for having me on. Yeah.